2: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is part two of Pretty Boy Floyd. So let's throw another log on the fire campers and get right back to it. I'm your co host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our storyteller and journalist,
1: Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Now, in part one of our tale of Pretty Boy Floyd, we recounted stories from three Ohio towns who had shocking encounters with Floyd and his gang. We went to Sylvania, Ohio, for Floyd's first bank robbery ever, then to his hideout in Akron, where his accomplice killed a cop, and then a gunfight in Bowling Green, where a second lawman was killed. In part two tonight, We're going to relive the events that led to Floyd's demise in an East Liverpool cornfield. Now, one could argue that Floyd's march toward his inevitable death probably was cemented on June the 17th, 1933. That was more than a year before he was killed. And it was for an incident he may not have been a part of. It was called the Kansas City Massacre. A gang had tried to help their pal escape the custody of police, and in the gunfight that ensued, two Kansas City detectives, an Oklahoma police chief, and an FBI agent were all killed. The gang also inadvertently killed the man they were attempting to rescue. The FBI listed Pretty Boy Floyd among their suspects. In hindsight, there are a lot of historians who think he wasn't there, that he had a pretty good alibi. Also, Floyd, who was happy to admit to most of his crimes, even sent a postcard to Kansas City police. It said, Dear Sirs, I, Charles Floyd, want it made known that I did not participate in the massacre of officers at Kansas City. It was postmarked from Springfield, Missouri. Some on the force believed him. They didn't think this ambush was Floyd's style at all. But the FBI either didn't believe him or didn't want to believe him. Because on July 23, 1934, the day after their agents killed the infamous bank robber John Dillinger, they cited the Kansas City Massacre in their decision to promote Pretty Boy Floyd a public enemy number one. And with that designation, a national dragnet was stretched coast to coast, waiting to ensnare him. Floyd and Adam Rischetti, who was also wanted for the Kansas City massacre, though also unlikely to have been there, had to disappear. And they made their way to Buffalo, New York, where they succeeded in staying off the radar for more than a year. But for a second time, a minor traffic accident would screw up all their plans. It was late October of 1934, and Floyd Rischetti and two female companions left their Buffalo safe house with the intent of returning to Oklahoma. The FBI attention had kept their faces in the news, and they knew it was just a matter of time best to be back home where the folks in the hills would shelter them. Unfortunately, they picked a morning thick with fog, and as they entered the Ohio village of Wellsville in Columbiana County, their car had a disagreement with a telephone pole. The men knew they didn't dare be seen, so they left it to the women to go into town and get the car repaired. They'd hang out somewhere near the roadside to be picked up afterward. That night, the men slept in a field, but they weren't well hidden. At dawn the next morning, two local residents, Joe Fryman and his son-in-law, David O'Hanlon, were driving past when they saw two men dressed in suits not far from the road, lying in the field covered in blankets. They contacted Wellsville Police Chief John Fultz. Chief Fultz and two of his officers, Grover Potts and William Irwin, went to check it out. But as soon as Floyd and Roschetti saw the approaching lawmen, They fled toward the woods while exchanging several rounds with the cops. The chief was injured in the foot, and Officer Potts took a bullet to the right shoulder, but they did manage to arrest Reschetti. And even though Roschetti wasn't talking except to give them a fake name, Chief Fultz had become confident that the bandit who had escaped into the woods was public enemy number one. He called the FBI. Meanwhile, Floyd was desperate to put some distance between him and the scene of the shootout. He flagged down a Model T driven by George McMullen of East Liverpool. When that car ran out of gas, he commandeered a Nash Rambler from James Baum, a florist from Wellsville. He ordered McMullen to travel with them, so now there were three in the car. The florist is the involuntary driver when they approached the village of Lisbon on U.S. Route 30. Pretty Boy saw a roadblock ahead, and he ordered Baum to turn the car around. But that action drew the attention of the two officers manning the roadblock. So they hopped into their cruiser and followed. Gunfire was exchanged, windshields shattered, and Floyd left the car and fled into nearby woods, Police stayed behind to deal with what they believed were two criminals still sitting in the car. The innocent carjacking victims, McMullen and Baum, exited the car with their hands raised. But police shot at them anyway, wounding Baum in the leg. Then they carted them both off to jail in handcuffs before realizing the real bad guy was the one who got away. By the end of the day, much of Columbiana County was being scoured by the newly arrived FBI agents, local police, and even armed citizens. And newspaper headlines all over the country were talking about the manhunt for Pretty Boy Floyd. Floyd remained at large for nearly 48 hours. On the afternoon of October the 22nd, he came upon a farmhouse on Spruceville Road. A few miles outside East Liverpool, he knocked on the door. The widow, Mrs. Ellen Conkle, was suspicious, but listened as the disheveled stranger tried explaining he had gotten lost while hunting in the woods, then tried another story in which he had gotten drunk and wandered off. Good hostess that she was, Mrs. Conkle accepted that whoever he was, he was starving, and she prepared him a meal of spare ribs, potatoes, rice pudding, and pumpkin pie. Floyd told her the mill was fit for a king and slipped a dollar under the plate for her to find later. While his mill was settling, the net outside was tightening. A local farmer had seen him walking in the area, and East Liverpool police were already on their way led by Chief Hugh McDermott and a patrolman named Officer Chester Smith, who had distinguished himself as a sniper during World War I. Following in a second vehicle were four FBI agents led by their famous supervisor, Melvin Purvis, the man who led the capture and killing of John Dillinger and was now on the verge of bagging his second prize. Back in Mrs. Conkle's kitchen... Floyd asked for assistance getting to Youngstown, and she told him her brother, Stuart Dyke, might give him a ride as soon as he finished with his work in the fields. Later, some will argue Floyd had refused to steal the car because the woman had befriended him, and had he stolen the car, he might have gotten away. But as it was, pretty boy sat in the front seat of Dyke's Model A, waiting for him to return. When Dyke was done with his field chores, he agreed to take the stranger at least part of the way to Youngstown. But it was too late. At the very moment they were pulling out of the farmyard, the two cars filled with East Liverpool and FBI lawmen came speeding down Spruceville Road. All pretense gone, Floyd ordered Dyke to pull the car behind a corn crib. And as the officers approached the corn crib, he sprinted for the woods, a Colt automatic in his right hand.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
1: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49, perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. There are different versions about what happened next. Melvin Purvis always insisted the shots that sent Floyd to the ground before he could reach the woods were fired by a Tommy gun in the hands of one of his agents. Others present at the scene said, no way. It was the sniper, Officer Chester Smith, and his Winchester, who initially wounded the outlaw. Either way, Floyd was still alive when they reached him. After he was handcuffed, Agent Purvis tried to question him about the Kansas City massacre, to which Floyd was said to have responded, I won't tell you anything, you son of a bitch. Those may have been his last words. Reportedly, the East Liverpool officers carried Floyd to the shade of an apple tree. Detectives found on him a watch fob with ten notches on it, presumably the counting of men he had killed. And there, under the apple tree, pretty boy Floyd succumbed to his wounds. But decades later... In 1979, that East Liverpool sniper, Chester Smith, gave an interview to Time magazine about the day Floyd died, and he made an electrifying claim. He said he intentionally shot at Floyd to wound him, not kill him. He said he was the only one who could reach him since he had the rifle, and the FBI agents with him were out of range with their handguns. Smith said, I knew Purvis couldn't hit him, so I dropped him with two shots from my 32 Winchester rifle. Smith said he then approached Floyd, at which point Purvis ran up to him and ordered him to back away. Smith stood by as Purvis questioned Floyd briefly, but was met by only curses. Hervis then told his FBI agent, Herman Hollis, to fire into him, and Hollis did, killing Floyd at point-blank range. Smith said his family and friends always knew the truth about what had happened, but he had never spoken about it publicly because the feds were clearly attempting to cover it up, and he didn't know if the truth would put anyone at risk. He spoke in 1979, he said, because he believed everyone else at the scene that day was dead. But Smith was wrong, because after the Time article ran, a surviving FBI agent, Winfred Hopton, stepped forward to deny Smith's version. He insisted that East Liverpool police weren't even there for the shootout and only arrived when it was over and that the man alleged to have murdered Floyd, Herman Hollis, wasn't on the capture team. There's no way to know who was right, whether Floyd was killed during a fair gunfight or executed as an unarmed and handcuffed prisoner in that cornfield. Whichever the case, the East Liverpool officers took Floyd's body into town, and it was embalmed at the Sturgis funeral home. Within hours, a telegram was received from Floyd's mother in Oklahoma requesting that her son's body not be photographed or exhibited, but her wishes were ignored. As many as 10,000 people around East Liverpool showed up at the funeral home and were permitted to file past his corpse. Numerous photos were taken, and a pottery worker was brought in to make a death mask. The mask was used to make plaster casts of Pretty Boy's face for distribution among the lawmen who had finally caught up with him. Then his body was returned to Oklahoma. Worse reputed, he had the largest funeral in the state's history with up to 40,000 people in attendance for services in the city of Salisaw and his interment in the town of Aikens.
2: Okay, I've got a few questions to tie up some loose ends.
1: Hit me with it. I'll see if I know the answer.
2: All right. What happened to Reschetti?
1: Rachetti okay, that was the gang member that was Floyd at the end there, right before the... Uh, big manhunt that led to his capture and death in in East Liverpool. This is actually interesting. So Melvin Purvis, the big FBI guy, went to Wellsville, Ohio, to take federal custody of Reschetti after Floyd was dead. And Wellsville wouldn't give him up. The police chief there could not stand Melvin Purvis and his superior attitude, so they drew out the process as long as they could, holding him on minor charges and then taking him to the Lisbon jail to sit out some more time. When Ohio finally released Rachetti he was taken to Kansas City. He was found guilty of participating in that Kansas City massacre, which there was some disagreement as to whether he was even there and he was executed. The more interesting question, Steve, is what happened to Purvis?
2: Purvis sounds a lot like Elliot Ness. He was pretty famous, wasn't he?
1: Oh yeah, he was uh, world famous. Catching and killing two public enemy number ones in a row. This was an era that treated gangster news like entertainment, and that will make you a household name. But his fame really rubbed his boss the wrong way. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover did not like Purvis being the face of his mob hunters. After Floyd was dead, Purvis was supposed to be off to catch the next guy on the FBI's list, babyface Nelson, but Hoover benched him, kept him in an office, and made life so unbearable that the year after Floyd's death, Purvis resigned and left the FBI. And then, Steve, there's this mystery. Purvis died in 1960 from a bullet wound to the head at the age of 56. The coroner ruled it a self inflicted wound, but stopped short of calling it suicide. He left it up to debate as to whether Purvis had killed himself or, as his family insisted, he had accidentally discharged his weapon while cleaning it.
2: All right, so we have another mystery here.
1: Hey, we're just trying to live up to our name.
2: That's it for part two of Pretty Boy Floyd. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week. May all of your mysteries have happy endings.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra